Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 24th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Note, Abe is not did not pause to sip a cup of coffee, which is what he did <laughs> yesterday. He's, he's changing his behavior. Never uh, make that mistake again. And now he is taking a sip of coffee. <laughs> Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Christine never has coffee during the show. I've Christine? already had my coffee. Sometimes I do. Sometimes okay, I do. okay. If okay. I've woken up later than okay. 6 a.m. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, associate editor Noah Rothman, who occasionally has coffee. I, I always have say. coffee. Oh, he always has coffee. Okay, <laughs> but somehow the coffee... Oh, yeah, he, Not only does he have coffee, wow. but he is just holding up a giant carafe of coffee. <laughs> And I have coffee. The six cups a day unhealthy. I have, I, I have no, coffee. No, it's, that's, so that's I hope, good. dear listener, that you are having coffee because I think we all need uh, a lot of caffeine this morning and maybe a Xanax or hmm. two or something stronger even than Xanax. What would that be? Um, horse tranquilizer. Horse tranquilizer. <laughs> um, obviously horrible, horrific scenes uh, last night in Louisville and elsewhere uh in response to the uh, grand jury indictment of only of only one police officer in the um, in the uh, dealing with the events that uh, led up to the the shooting of Breonna Taylor, two cops shot last night in Louisville, um, and uh, Molotov cocktails being thrown, uh, scenes uh, shown on social media of uh, once again of diners being disrupted by. Um, by Black Lives Matter protesters who were just sitting outside having food. Uh, and then, of course, uh, yesterday afternoon, um, the President of the United States decided to decline to say that there was uh, there would be a peaceful transition of power uh, following the election. Um, I assume meaning that he was saying two things, one of which was uh, he would decide, as he said since 2016, he would decide, he'd keep his powder dry on whether or not the election had been rigged, which is one thing. And that second, there wouldn't have to be a a, a peaceful transition of power because he would win the election and therefore he wouldn't have to leave office. Um, uh, But... Uh, this is a uh, it was a calamitous event, um, and we could talk about whether uh, it's a calamitous event because it's an indication that you know he is going to barricade himself in the Oval Office and not leave and try to create a civil war, or because in practical political terms, aside from uh, his constant assaults on sort of the uh, legitimate pageantry of American democracy, including the obeisance, proper obeisance that is paid to these traditions, like the fact that we have a peaceful transfer of power, which is the one of the glories of the American system. Um, aside from that, that, uh, that we, he's um, put himself in the position now of, he actually had like two or three days of good news, there was some decent polling news. He's still behind, but the polls were tightening. And now, of course, all we're going to talk about for five days is whether or not he's, you know, going to refuse to leave office. And there's a debate next Tuesday in 
20 minutes of that debate is going to be taken up with questions of what he believes about the electoral process and all of this. And, uh, and so he just stepped on, uh, you know, his first good 48 hours uh, in terms of the practical politics, including the Supreme Court nomination stuff, which I know liberals think is bad, but we think is probably on balance, mildly marginally good for him and for Republicans. Well, that's over with now. And of course, uh, the nominee, uh, whoever Amy Coney Barrett is, <laughs> um, uh, is going to have to address this in her hearing, right? There's going to be an hour on this in her hearing. What is she going to do if the election is, uh, what is she going to do if the president says that the election isn't legitimate? Blah, 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 blah. So that that hearing now becomes part of the uh literally the electoral process. And he did that. He did that to himself. It's not good for him. Any time that he is discussing things that are not the things that he wished to raise to discuss is bad. So um, that's my, uh, that's my summation of the reason that we all need horse tranquilizers and coffee and Xanax and whatever else. Christine, where, where are you on? Um, no, I com- I completely agree with you with the assessment of what Trump said, because it's one of those perfect examples of a moment where he could behave in, in un-Trump-like fashion, right? He's asked this very you know direct question, do you guarantee a peaceful transition power? Perfect opportunity to do an excellent soundbite about how, yes, that's, as you said, this is one of the great things about our system is that the the new pre- whoever the new president is sworn in with the old president watching, even if that president is from the opposition, even if they lost in a bitter election fight, all of that is set aside on inauguration day as a symbol of how this country operates, not through not through aggression and force and street violence to overturn political decision making, but at the ballot box. So we already have a lot of anxiety right now about the ballot box. We talked a little bit about that yesterday. Um, and by the way, you were completely prescient because there's a story out of Axios today about how the Democrats are flipping their message on, on in-person voting. Um, but for him to say that is, I mean, I, I don't like to use the word dangerous all that often to describe his rhetoric because a lot of it is, is overblown. But that is a dangerous statement at this particular moment where, you know, we're a couple of weeks away from a, an election in a very tense time with a lot of anxiety and violence going on in the streets. He needs to be the calming force. And the way to do that is to say, you know what, even if we do have even if it takes a little longer to count all the ballots, we're all on the same path here, which is to to legitimize this election, whoever wins. I think I'm going to win, et cetera, et cetera. He can do all his bombast. But to question the legitimacy of the election before it happens is not good. And I, I just think it was, it, it's egregious. It's terrible. Not just politically for him as a matter of strategy, but for the country. It's bad for the country for him to say things like that. I mean, I think he'd already gone there. He'd gone there. And of course, the Democrats have gone there, have been going there for two months. Hillary Clinton said, right. Biden shouldn't concede if anything is close. Yeah, but that responsibility. Yeah, but this, but that shows to me why it's dangerous. Because the reason it's dangerous is because when you introduce these things from different these 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 attacks on our traditions in our system from from on high, um, they build on each other. And so now that he's set this, now that he's on record saying this, you can't retract that. Everything the president says, especially something of that matter, resonates indefinitely forward. It is now, in, that is introduced into the, into the level of, uh, into, into high level, you know, not high level 
political analysis, but into discussions of our of our process. Uh, Noah, let me ask you this: um, People uh, are are starting to offer not a defense but an explanation mm-hmm. of what triggered the president here, because the phrasing of the question was win, lose, or draw, do you uh, do you here pledge to abide by a peaceful transfer of power? And of course, win, lose, or draw is a weird way to put it, because what, what, what transfer of power would there be if he won? There would be no transfer of power. Um, and so uh, he was sandbagged, according to some people, or he didn't really understand the question, according to some people, or, you know, some some version of that uh, effort to explain why he would have gotten rattled and not really understood what it was that he was being asked. He was just being asked like, will you know, will you, or will you right now? It's like, they're saying he was, he was refusing to say that he, he was, uh, he was revoking his right to say the election results were rigged. And since we know that he said that in 2016, he's been saying it during 2020, he's not going to be put in some position where he takes that back standing, uh, you know, at this press conference yesterday. So that, that is uh, David Harsanyi of the National Review uh, said it. A couple of other people have said it. What do you, what do you make of that? Um, as a post hoc rationalization, I guess whatever gets you through the night um, doesn't strike me as particularly compelling. When a politician of any competence is asked whether you'll uh, consent to a peaceful anything, the answer is yes. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of cognition on your part to get to that point. You don't have to think your way through it. It's not a trap. Um, it's pretty foolish. And it does drive everybody crazy. Um, not the, not just the president's opponents. I mean, and even to engage in that rationalization is an irrational act. Um, and that's crazy. However, I will say that I don't think the people who anticipate this as being some sort of a prelude to a coup are being particularly rational either. It's reckless, it's dangerous, it's irresponsible. But the president has, has been doing this, as you said, for a long time. And as you noted, he questioned the legitimacy of his own election. Um, so this is just some, something of a tick. And by laying the groundwork to contest the legitimacy of this election as he has, he's revealed his objections to be a contrivance. You know, the president's allies will engage in motivated reasoning as they're doing now. But by getting in front in front of this issue, he's preemptively robbed his own claims of any legitimacy because he's claiming illegitimacy to an election that hasn't yet occurred. He's simply saying that I'm going to say this no matter what. And yeah, there will be people who will respond to that. But there's also sort of a political effect of this, um, which uh, redounds to the president's detriment, because this is why the the law and order message that he's been running with for so long doesn't take. He is an agent of chaos. Nobody perceives him to be a force for stability. He doesn't perceive himself to be a force for stability. He doesn't seem particularly interested in stability. And so if people are frustrated by this violence, terrified by this violence, as they should be, they don't look to the president to restore order because he has no interest in restoring order. And if he loses the election, it will be in part, not just because of the many conditions that are um, suboptimal right now, but in part because they don't perceive him to be this force for stability. Um, you know, everybody, there's, we might talk about this later, there's this Barton Gelman piece in The Atlantic, which, you know, crafts over the course of 20,000 words, a variety of rationales for how the president would go about stealing the election. 
um, most of which I don't find particularly compelling. A lot of them are speculative. But ultimately, the crux of his argument rests on this proposition that the president's agitation will result in street action. And, you know, as Christine said, we've seen a lot of street action. But the notion that the, the system would buckle under that is, in my view, uh, really doesn't give the country enough service, enough credit. Um, you know, I, and I'm filibustering here, but I wanted to relate this story. It's something that stuck with me for a real long time. My, pre- my father, uh, in the year 2000, after the election, was engaged in a deal to liquidate a hospital and transfer it to Nigeria. So he was over in Nigeria. And there was a lot of news about um, the election at the time and the chiefs with whom he was meeting, tribal chieftains, you know, posed this question to him with all this, you know, violence and, or not violence, but all this uh, uh, instability and questions over the election, protests in the street and, you know, questions about whether or not there will be a transfer of power that's, that's legitimate. Why aren't there, why isn't the military in the streets? Why, why haven't you resorted to, you know, this, this last stopgap, which we would in a heartbeat. And um, my father's answer was essentially, uh, if I remember right, that the conventions that we have, you know, are what, what we do is we revert to the courts and we put our faith in the law and in tradition and the civic covenant. And that's worked for us for the last 200 years. And it's not, it's not a, entirely a norm. It's not something that just exists and it's a tradition and we adhere to it or we just break it based on our whatever we want. There's, there's law that buttresses this. It's not, it's not something that, you know, just sprang out of somebody's forehead and we just kind of take, take it for granted. A lot of people think that this is a very fragile thing. I don't. I don't think this is a fragile thing. I think it can withstand a lot of pressure. We're going to see. Well, and that, that's such a that's a really important point, because if Trump had not been undermining his own case for law and order with these remarks, which I agree with, you know, he's done, there would be more pressure brought to bear on some of the things that the other side has been saying, most notably Joe Biden in the wake of the Breonna Taylor grand jury uh, indictment of only one of the officers basically said, we think this is a terrible thing. This, this was injustice. In fact, that is exactly how our justice process works. Um, you know, AG brought the charges, a grand jury of, of Breonna Taylor's peers sat and listened to all the evidence, listened to what the investigation found and determined that the officers who who shot were doing so uh, not because they were murderous racists, but because they were in the line of duty and fired upon first. The outcome was still a tragedy, which I think everyone should recognize that Breonna Taylor should not have lost her life. It was a it was a terrible tragedy. And there are lots of other reforms that could be made in the future to to try to limit that from happening again. But the fact that Joe Biden stood up and said after our justice process work said this isn't justice, that really upset me because that gives here. Here's one of our favorite drinking things. That's a permission structure for the people who are in the streets. Because they will argue, look, even even the leader of the Democratic Party right now is saying this was unjust, unjust. This is unjust. When in fact, it's precisely how our justice systems work, not by pressure or by threat of violence or by emotional hyperventilations and hyperbole by the media that that encourages them, but through thorough investigation and rational application of the law. And it does not always give us the emotional result that we want, but that does not mean it's not justice. Well, I was struck by the fact that according to the news stories on the, on the indictment that um, this was not, this had not been the execution of a no knock warrant, which I read, I mean, I'm not, I haven't read deeply into the Brianna Taylor matter over the last, you know, uh, months, 
but I read enough that I, I, I thought it was a foregone conclusion that it was a no knock warrant. If it was not in fact, if it was in fact a knock warrant, uh, that does change everything. And this is where we start getting into the, the madness of, of, uh, of these events becoming these, you know, news stories that, that sort of gallop out of control. Because obviously, if they knocked on the door and said, police open up, and then somebody Which someone inside... Testi- someone testified to the grand jury that right. that's indeed what they did. They had right. a witness who said that, yes. Right. And then uh, her boyfriend starts shooting. The entire incident becomes something else. Now, it does appear that they, you know, that they went kind of, you know, they went crazy. I mean, they shot, I don't know, 20 times or whatever it is. I don't know. I mean, again, like I'm now using it from, I don't, I, I don't even know, but the indictment was returned against an officer who had discharged his weapon, but wasn't in the line of fire and was not shooting at a defined target. Apparently it's right. the, yeah, the bullet went into a neighbor's house. That's right. why the wanted right. endangerment charge. Yes. Right. So, I mean, it really does change. It should change everything. But of course, it doesn't change anything because uh, the argument is that she was a person, you know, a a terrible mistake happened and this terrible thing happened. And uh, therefore, it was an assassination of an unarmed uh, black person. Um, And I'm struck by, I sent you guys this um, uh, uh, tweet storm last night by someone named Michael Jackson, who won the Pulitzer Prize this year for a musical that he wrote called A Strange Loop. And he tells a story about how he was living in an apartment and he had a couple of roommates, because this is before he won the Pulitzer Prize and became sort of like a celebrated figure in the American theater. He had a couple of roommates, and it turned out that one of his roommates was a drug dealer. And at six o'clock in the morning, there was a bang, there were bang, is banging on the door and cops saying, you know, let us in. We have a warrant. And they opened the door and basically he and a second roommate are pushed onto the couch, onto a couch, you know, and sort of handcuffed or, you know, basically put in a prone position. Uh, and they find the third guy and he freaks out. Understandably, he starts crying and hyperventilating. And the cops get concerned and bring him some water and tell him he's going to be okay. And they just have to search the apartment because somebody in the, they, they understand that he is, he is not a person in the warrant, but they have to make sure that, you know, no one fires at them or whatever. And then they find the drug dealer. They arrest him. He's now in prison. So the cops come in, they have to sort of stabilize the situation, make sure they're not fired upon. They're executing a warrant that was legally obtained uh, they treat they from the way he describes it. They treated him very properly and kindly, and understood that he was in emotional distress and tried to help him and get help for him. And then in the in the course of this, he says cops shouldn't execute warrants, and uh, you know uh, it's open season on black people. Having having acknowledged that his roommate was in fact a drug dealer who was who was part of a drug gang who then went to prison. Now, I understand if you're a libertarian who believes that there should be no drug laws, that the story here would be to get rid of the drug laws and then no warrant would be executed. 
But is this where we've come that sort of like a member of the American, a Pulitzer Prize winning dramatist tells this story that tells an entirely different story from the story he thinks it's telling, at least in my eyes, and then says somehow that he was treated unjustly where he should be blaming his drug dealer roommate for no, having endangered him. That is exactly Not the, the cops story. who are trying, you know, what if the drug dealer neighbor had, you know, continued and there hadn't been a warrant against him and some other drug gang had come to his apartment to take out the drug dealer neighbor? Were they going to observe niceties and give him a glass of water when he hyperventilated? No, they would have shot him in the head. Well, and this is the thing about the Breonna Taylor case. The other tragic aspect of it is that she was involved in the drug trade peripherally. She wasn't, I don't know if she was dealing or what, but she was heavily personally involved with a known drug dealer in that area. She, he, they have her on recordings confirming that she was holding money for this. It was an ex-boyfriend. Um, it's a, it, that, it's a tragic tale because she clearly at some points tried to separate herself from this individual for whatever reason, but somehow was still kind of trapped in this world. Um, which even if she wasn't directly dealing the drugs herself, she was a peripheral figure, which is why her name was also on the warrant. Um, you know, she'd rented a car under her name, which then someone used and a, a, someone was murdered in that car. I mean, she was not, she was in this orbit. And that is tragic because she obviously was at some level at some point trying to get away from that. And, um, but that's part of the story. Like the, the, the rush to, to turn everyone into a perfectly innocent angel and martyr whenever something happens is it actually undermines a cause because then you can't look at a situation, uh, a very complicated situation and find the places where there is room for reform. I will say this. I think, John, actually that that is the narrative that we're going to see more and more of from, from, Prominent people. Ibram X. Kendi just tweeted out something saying the law has always been lawless ever since the law replaced the master. I mean, well, what a nice little, you know, woke Zen Cohen you've put out there. But that's actually a day that that idea is not without consequences. Um, but that's again, he is he's the most admirably forthright member of this revolutionary contingent there. They don't want political reform. They don't want the law to work as the law should work. They don't want to operate within the existing system. They want to shatter the existing system. They want a new system, um, something rather ill-defined and certainly undemocratic. And uh, Mr. Kennedy's own estimation, we need anti-democratic uh, conventions to implement the kind of draconian, totalitarian, as I would call them, because they operate within every sphere of society, civil society uh, reforms. But this is this is not... A, a movement that has any interest in justice as we understand it, the objective blind meeting out of uh, uh, consequences for violations of criminal statute. They don't want that. They want something much grander. It's only the uh, apologists for the revolutionaries who then introduce the reform story and the incremental uh, no, defund the police doesn't mean defund the police. No, all cops are bastards doesn't mean all cops are bastards. You know, they they swoop in after the radicals state very plainly, explicitly, and sometimes at length what they want and what they mean. Uh, I should correct something uh, in what I said about the, the warrant. So the warrant was a no-knock warrant, but the officers knocked and announced themselves. Uh, 
and that's what the witness uh, testified to, which does change everything. Because um, David French has a very interesting piece at the Dispatch where he says that there are two different Supreme Court findings that are in conflict here, supposedly, that are creating uh, complexities that are leading to terrible results. One is the uh, con- constitutionality of a no-knock warrant, uh, which the Supreme Court has found is acceptable. And the other is the castle defense, which is that you are allowed to defend your home against an intruder. And if the intruder, if the, the intruder, if the intruder is not clearly a police officer, uh, you are still allowed to defend your home. So if, if you, therefore, if you have a no knock warrant, someone, you know, bang bursts in the door and you pick up a gun and you shoot the guy because he's burst into your house and it turns out he's a cop, two rights come into conflict here. Um, so this whole thing then turns on the question of whether or not the cops did in fact knock and announce themselves, even though the warrant did not oblige them to do so. Also, it's, law, go ahead. It's, it's not impossible that Brianna Taylor and her boyfriend didn't hear right. the announcement, hear them say, this is the police. Right. And the, so the, I have a couple questions about the boyfriend um, who himself, is he a licensed gun owner? I'm not, we're not, I have I think no. So. Okay. So he's a, if he's a legally, then French's uh, description is, is apt. Um, but we do know from, from uh, the investigation that the cop whose bullets killed Brianna Taylor was himself first shot by the boyfriend's gun. So he, he was also legally returning fire. And I, I do think this idea that this is what activists um, who want to burn down the system, as Noah described uh, correctly, this is what they don't want, is a situation where actually everybody acted within the realm of the law and someone still died. Because that is a, that's literally a tragedy. Nobody did anything legally wrong and yet someone is dead. So then that should be the impetus to, you know, change the way that the law works or, or figure out ways to tune, fine tune it. But that can't happen in a in a, an environment where it, the answer is literally the National Guard has to come out because people are going to start rioting and shooting cops in the street. But this is an outgrowth also of this cultural phenomenon in which we become really uncomfortable with the notion of moral ambiguity. Um, this is a generation now that rebels physically against the notion of, that you can be uh, a, a complex individual. Like the, in, in art, we required to find black hats and white hats and um, there was this rebellion against video games, for example, because they have begun to embrace moral complexity. Um, and that can lead you to, I guess, you know, not you, not us, but those people out there who we don't have any faith in. They, that can lead them to some really bad conclusions about what kind of behaviors you, you engage in. And this is just a really dumbed down, childish view of the world that has been reinforced by um, well-meaning elders uh, who... who perceive this to be some sort of a, of a, a noble impulse, but it's manifested now in the streets where we do not have the capacity to navigate a, a situation in which there are no villains. Right. Well, you know, th- that's an interesting, 21 years ago, uh, New York was torn apart by the killing of a, of an African immigrant named Amadou Diallo in the vestibule of a Bronx the apartment building that he lived in at 1230 at night because four cops responding to looking for somebody saw him. Uh, The vestibule was dark. 
They called to him. They asked him to stop. He seemed to be reaching for something. They freaked out. One of them started shooting. Uh, the, the other cops didn't un, didn't know whether the bull, the gunfire was coming from their colleagues or from Diallo. So they started shooting. 51 shots were fired. Diallo was killed. He was not the suspect. He did not have a gun. Uh, it was... a What was this? It was a tragedy. And we can't deal with tragedy. Tragedy is a horrendous, inexplicable thing happens where a series of snap quick judgments and things are going on that all go wrong all at once. And, um, you know, and who of course was there to try to light a fire at the scene and create a riot and all of that was Al Sharpton, needless to say. And it didn't happen in, in part because, uh, the city, I believe uh, was, was, was still in the wash of a kind of dizzying gratitude that the crime wave had been interrupted and turned on its head and that the city was now safe, that the kinds of pressures that, you know, if such a thing were to happen today, there would be 2 million people in the streets in New York, uh, calling for the disbanding of the, of the NYPD. Um, and, but the point here was that, uh, what was clearly the case was that something happened that nobody, would have wanted to happen. Not any of those cats. They weren't, you know, they weren't targeting for assassination that, you know, he didn't know too much. So they were killing him in secret. Nothing. It was five or six horrible turns of the moment that led to this terrible result that I'm sure haunts these guys who were involved. Diallo is dead and they're haunted for the rest of their lives for having participated or been, you know, involved in this moment. That's what a tragedy is. But we don't like tragedies anymore. Nobody likes tragedies. But I mean, like, this is the whole thing. It's like something terrible happens. Who do you sue? The whole the whole notion that something happens and what you want to do is find a lawyer to sue somebody is to deny that terrible things happen for which no guilt can be assigned, right? I mean, and this is... You know, through the course of human history, it was sort of understood that, you know, crap happens and life is short and life is terrible and terrible things happen. And in an odd way, we in America no longer accept this contention. Well, a secular society has no way of processing that without falling into this kind of Manichaean good versus evil, because that used to be the role for for faith, right? Faith was a way for human beings to try to understand the meaning of tragedy. There's an, there's entire theologies built around answering this question of why does God allow bad things to happen? <laughs> but in a secular society, which doesn't have um, a mechanism for processing that way that everyone can agree on, or where that mechanism is broken down, which I think it has at this point, there is a turn to force, to, to you know, anger and hostility. It's, it's a real emotional because the, the feeling is still there, but to process it, you need some way of, of doing that. And that's, I think, why we see so much the hysterical videos of people literally screaming and losing control of themselves is, is 
I mean, there's almost a kind of religiously ecstatic thing yeah, going Pentecostalist. on. Pentecostalist. Yeah. Yes. It's like, yeah. It's I like mean, I grew up sick. in that world. I've seen it before. It's very recognizable when you see someone on the street literally losing control of themselves physically. Um, it's cathartic for them and it's terrifying for the per- other people around them sometimes. You know, we were also talking about this the other day offline. So we should bring it to the show when we were discussing the impulse by some to equate uh, lives lost in war and lives lost in 9-11 to the to COVID deaths. Um, and that makes sense if it all falls under the rubric of unfairness. It's just, you know, that was unfair and it's all unfair, right? So it's just a different species of unfairness, even though you're talking one is murder, one is uh, death by pestilence, and those two things are not comparable to or any rational human being unless you see them all as just the universe being unfair, and that's the sort of thing that we have to rectify as a society because unfairness must be somehow extirpated from the human condition. I mean, I think that's a very, you know, deep point. Everybody, if you've lost somebody, particularly you've lost somebody, uh, you know, at a, in an untimely way, your deepest feeling is that some horrible injustice has been done. But it's a cosmic injustice. You know, uh, I mean, maybe it's not if someone, you know, if someone is killed by a drunk driver, it's not exactly a cosmic injustice. Someone has done something wrong for which there should be punishment. But, you know, my sister died of cancer at 63. It was, uh, you know, it was a terrible injustice that was done to her for which, as 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 Christine says, the only consolation or solution is to look to, you know, what. God says to Job, right? Which is when Job says, why are you doing this to me? And God says, where were you when I created the universe? How, how can you understand the, wor- the, the mechanics, the workings of the universe are something that it is not for you even to begin to grasp? And that there is, a con- there is consolation in that great final poem in the book of Job because it says... That which surpasseth understanding may have a motive, may have a motivating factor that is beyond our ability to understand. And therefore, in that sense, may be part of a just system that we are just, it, it's, it's, it's not for us to see its workings. But, but you know, that's we, not, go ahead. No, just, we shouldn't lose sight in this, that it's, that it's not just the, um, tragedies in which everything goes wrong and no one is precisely to blame that um, ignite this kind of response. There, there, there are the cases where um, suspects kind of do everything wrong, um, and still that gets the, yeah. the the same response. Yeah, or 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 Jesse Smollett, or or cases yeah. in which the country is set on fire by 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 lies, um, which again speaks to a different impulse which is which is the question of whether or not uh when when you're in a in a in a high pressure moment uh in the country people uh look to take advantage of it uh by you know making kind of machiavellian use of the of the emotions that are being you know in, in engendered to see if they can improve their contract negotiations with a with a hollywood studio over their tv show um, which also happens. I mean, and of course, one can say this and say, well, that's not fair. You can't say that because Justice Smollett is one person. It's one thing that happened, right? 
And again, we have to go back to the signature fact of the entire Black Lives Matter moment if you are skeptical to worse about the importance of these confrontations, which is 15 unarmed black men were killed by cops in the United States in 2019. 15, there are 42 million black people in the United States and there are 330 million residents of the United States and there are, I don't know, 760,000 police officers and there were 15 of these incidents. 15. Even beyond that, the phrase that always gets me when people say, why don't you support Black Lives Matter, the movement? I say, hands up, don't shoot. And they're like, but that's why you should support Black Lives Matter. I said, the movement was birthed in a lie. That phrase was a lie. It was proven to be a lie. And people don't like to hear that at all. But it is, it is, it is a fact that cannot be avoided. The, but I will, the response I always, I tend to get, not always, but the one I tend to get is, yes, but it could be true. But that that was the Tawana Brawl. This at the very birth, at the very birth of these agitations 30 years ago was the Tawana Brawley incident. And Tawana Brawley claimed that she had been gang raped by Ku Klux Klansmen who had smeared feces on her and all this. And it turned out that she was afraid of her stepfather and had made all this up. And by the time this incident, you know, had been had sort of cooked into this giant stew, an assistant district attorney in New York was accused of being involved, as was the attorney general of the state of New York, as some in some kind of sex ring that was, you know doing all this and all of that. And then it turned out that it was a cock and bull story, a teenage girl's cock and bull story. And uh, at which point it was, but it could be true. How do you know? I mean, things like this happen. Oh, really? Things like this happen every day. Klansmen hmm. are wandering around Poughkeepsie, New York, smearing feces on 15-year-old girls. Gee, I, you know what? I, I didn't know that happened every day. Now that I know that it happens every day, I'd really better change the way I calculate this because that is that is the way this devolves into this this happens all the time and it doesn't happen all the time yeah that's it's, not it, limited it's a to, lie that's not limited to racial issues in the wake of the um I wrote about this for the website in the wake of the in the me too movement Thomson Reuters Foundation convened 550 specialists in the field of women issues to rank the world based on the number, the, the rate at which women are mistreated. And the United States ranked in the top 10 alongside places like India, Afghanistan, Syria, Somalia, Saudi Arabia, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the notion there is that, you know, I mean, there was sexual harassment in this country and coercion and a lack of access to rape justice uh, or justice in rape cases. Um, and, but it is a lie. They knew it's a lie. It's predicated on a lie, but it's a lie in service to a greater truth, a right. more universal truth, one right. that we really wish would be true. And it's also harder. There are certain things that it is harder to, you know, sort of like, as I say, factually, the idea that it's open season on 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 black men and that cops are shooting black men all over the country every day constantly and that they're all and black men are going to die young because they're killed by cops is a lie. The idea that uh, black people live, you know, with a degree of sort of low level in an atmosphere in which they are viewed with low level but persistent distrust that makes it hard for them to have the same opportunities as others and all of that is, is not so easily dismissed, nor is the idea that men are pigs when they when they deal with women. That's not 
dismissible. Like one of the reasons that the Me Too movement made perfect sense as it happened was everybody knows that actresses are treated like cattle and that this has been going on for a hundred years. Like that is a real thing. That is a thing that happens and that men, you know, can be uh, insensitive to gross with women, but being gross is not a crime. Excluded. Present. Uh, Thank you very much. Well, there are there, you know, we will we will put that to one side. Thank you. But um, but you know, being gross is not a crime. That's the thing. You know, being a uh, if you excuse the term, being a shitty media man, so that you like take somebody that you work with out to out for drinks and then make a pass at them on the street. That's not a crime. Maybe it's unseemly. Maybe you should go into a drunk tank. Maybe you're like you know, yucky, but your entire life isn't supposed to be destroyed because of something like that. And yet it's, it's a thing that happens. That actually is a thing that happens every day. And then the question is to what extent are the things that happen every day criminal and deserving of punishment? And the point is that obviously if black men are being shot by cops every day, those are, you know, that, that would indicate that, these are things deserving of punishment, but the country seems to have been hypnotized into believing that these incidents, not just black men, but obviously Breonna Taylor, not a black man, that these incidents are constant and common and happening every single day, everywhere in the country. And that is an untruth. And so we are, we are, there are millions of people rioting and going through re-educations and having diversity committees come visit their schools and their workplaces to teach them about how racist they are based on something that is not a truth. What was the name of the um, person who was shot in Washington, D.C., Christine? The, oh, Dion uh, Kay. Dion Kay. Kay, yes. Yeah, and the story behind that was that he it was a completely justified so shooting. He, he was uh, he he ran from cops and then turned and pointed a weapon at a cop who had told him to stop. He was re- he did not stop. Uh, he was on the cops radar screen because he was a known gang member and had been driving around the city live streaming himself waving um, illegal weapons. They, when they went to stop him, two two other men in the car at the same time with illegal weapons were also arrested without incident because they did what the cops said. Dion ran. And the question is whether he was trying to throw the weapon away or whether he was aiming it at the cop. There was a split second. You can, the footage, the body cam footage from the police officer was released. It's very clear that the police officer behaved appropriately. That gun was headed right, was pointing right at him when, when he was shot. Um, nevertheless, Black Lives Matter in, immediately staged all across the city um, protests, and they still now have him on their list of, of unarmed black men, their argument being he was trying to throw the gun away and the cop should have known that in that eighth of a second and not fired. Yeah, um, but it's not. And I would blame the protesters, but a, a mob behaves like a mob. It, it's the li- collective lizard brain. And to an extent there, you know, the individual who's drawn up in that action deserves at least some deference, if not absolution. It's the institutions that are making this happen. It's the ACLU saying, D.C. police murdered Dion K. Right. Those are their words. Right. Um, the, the American Civil Liberties Union and politicians who who, who fail to make a distinction between um, this woman who, who died tragically and that situation and a hundred other situations. There's no 
there's no distinctions drawn. We don't we don't have the capacity for nuance in this argument. And those those politicians and in our institutions are doing us a real disservice. Yeah. Look, and treating us like children. I mean, I'll tell you another story from New York's, you know, good bad old days, meaning the days in which crime was like on the on the vertiginous decline. And there were these incidents. So in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, there was a, a schizophrenic young man uh, who was having a fit on the street and threatening people, screaming at them, uh, or, you know, ultra-Orthodox Jew. And he, uh, the cops were called in. And um, he had uh, uh, one of those little hammers. I don't know what, what they're, peen hammers? Is that is that the word? Mm. He had, had one of these little hammers, which his parents later said was a religious object to him. Not to anybody else, by the way, but to him, it was a religious object. And the cops had told him to uh, hold in place and freeze. And he took this, and it's a small hammer, right? But he sort of took this hammer and raised it over his head. And then they shot him and he, and he, and he died. And the parents said he was crazy, which he was. He was sick, which he was. And he had this hammer, which he did, but it was a little hammer and it couldn't hurt anybody. And they should have known. And this whole idea that police officers are supposed to be gifted with telepathic abilities to understand the motivations and actions of somebody when they have five milliseconds to decide what to do it's not clear they knew it was a hammer. It could have been a knife. It could have been a gun. They didn't know it was in his hand. They weren't standing face to face with him. And the ultimate truth here is they don't want to shoot a guy. You think cops don't know that the minute that they have to discharge their weapon, their careers are suddenly in a terrible crisis. They don't want to shoot anybody. They don't want to shoot. Now, obviously, a psychopathic cop, a crazy person, or, you know, somebody who is like a mafia cop who wants to silence a witness will do something like that. But, you know, we're not, we don't live in, we're not living in NYPD blue. We're living in the real world. And so the family was mad at the police officers for not saying, okay, fine, do whatever you want to me. I can see you're crazy and maybe it's just a hammer. And so whatever. And, and this is a big element of what's going on here now 23 years later. The cops are supposed to know what you're doing. They are supposed to know it. That's why you are supposed to not – you're supposed to simply follow the, the things that cops say, even if, by the way, they're being incredibly unjust. I mean, that's the other weirdness of all this is even if they're being incredibly unjust, the power situation says go prone. Go prone. It's going to be much worse on you. If you submit to your adrenalized condition and like come back at them, go prone, go let their cops stop, do whatever they want, deal with the consequences later. Um, And then people say they're humiliated. It's awful. It's terrible. And I understand that completely. But what choice do you have? They have a monopoly on force. We give them that monopoly on force because they are there to protect us. They're not on the streets to go shoot. They're there serving as public safety officers. And we, we no longer, I, I believe right now, that is not a common belief about police in the United States. I don't know what people think they're there for. 
Right. Apparently there's... Well, there there are certainly trigger-happy cops and cops who are in dangerous situations where they discharge their weapon after giving conflicting uh, uh, demands to suspects that they cannot meet. Um, we've all seen that. But we all know that those are outliers. And that's the except we shouldn't we should be capable of making the note that this is a rare condition, not an endemic one. I mean, I've talked about this again. I hate to just keep focusing on New York. It's just that I know the story well. And New York underwent a transformation in its policing from the 60s to the 90s. New York had a, had a bad police department in the 1960s. It was corrupt. Uh, cops were getting payoff. Routine B cops would get payoffs routinely from people on the street. Uh, you know, there was a gigantic corruption commission that sort of looked into what was going on. It was a nepotistic system where, you know, cops, people got into the department because their fathers were in the department, their grandfathers were in the department, no matter what they were, no matter whether they showed any facility or ability or had the cognitive ability to do it and all of that. And over the course of the next 30 years, after the NAP commission found all of this corruption and bad practice, the entire department was overhauled. Cops had to have a college degree. That was not necessarily because it was so good because they needed to be more intelligent or something like that, but also so they would be older, so that they would join the force when they were 22, 23. They needed to have a college degree. They needed to go through six months of training. They they got training in a variety of ways, including de-escalation practices and this and that and the other thing. And by the time the 90s rolled around, the NYPD was a highly trained, highly effective force in which police never pulled their the number of times that a new york city police officer in a city that it does not have a high overall crime rate but is twice as large as any other city so therefore the aggregate number of confrontations between police officers and individuals is probably higher than in cities that are much smaller but have a higher crime level nonetheless they never pull their guns they don't take their guns out of their holsters they don't have to. They've learned that they don't have to. A lot of that is stuff that's not happening, I think, in smaller cities and in suburbs and stuff like that. These cops are not as well trained. And they may also be operating on the basis of the pop culture image of criminality and policing, which is that, you know, you're always under, you know, my God, at any moment you could get killed. And all of that is sort of true, but it's also really not true. And so, uh, what we're going to see if this goes well after all of this is a, is a training revolution in American policing where it's not just that, you know, some, some guy is, you know, given a badge and wanders around like a hall monitor being obnoxious to people on the street because he can be, uh, which is again, also not a crime, but it does create ugly scenes that are unnecessary. Well, and if you talk to police uh, officers and ask them, you know, if, what would be the number one, ref- what's one of the reforms that you would like to see? A lot of them will tell you better screening mechanisms so we can screen at the very beginning of the pipeline when people are coming in and want to train as police officers, better screening mechanisms so they can weed out at the very beginning the people who would be down the line, more likely to be trigger happy bad cops, right? Because we we do this all the time in hiring, right? There are all kinds of ways you can screen and vet. And if you've ever worked for any sort of um, you know uniform service uh, for the federal government or whatnot, any any anything that involves intelligence, you know, level screening, 
you're, you're given a kind of personality screen. They can devise it. They have them in use in some departments, but there could be a lot of interesting money and research spent on that kind of issue. That way, by the time someone graduates from the academy, you already have gotten rid of the potential bad bad eggs. And, you know, there are all kinds of interesting um, creative reforms that could happen once cops graduated and are on the job at the very beginning. That's actually when people say we want to defund the police, spend money on the stuff that we know might have an opportunity to improve them, not just get rid of them. But obviously that's not their goal, the more radicals. So uh, as we... Let me just pull this back to sort of rank rank politics for a minute. Uh, there's uh, Biden declared a lid again today, uh, meaning he will make no public appearances or news or anything today. Um, and uh, this has now become a, coming a sort of a, a general joke because I think there have been four lids in the last seven days. Uh, the Biden apologists say he's clearly doing debate prep. Uh, don't you know this is the most important thing that's coming? It's coming next Tuesday, so he's doing debate prep. Um, people uh, uh, worry Democrats are saying, oh my God, you know, he really has to be out there doing things because uh, the Trump people are. And conservatives are saying there's obviously something wrong with his mental acuity because he's not appearing, not saying anything, not doing anything. Um, Then I see these polls this morning, New York Times, you know, really high quality New York Times polls that have a tie race in Georgia uh, and uh, a tie, is it a tie race in Georgia? A a, a three point uh, Biden lead in Iowa and a three point Trump lead in um, Texas. In Texas, uh, and that this again would say whatever it is that Biden's doing, he should just keep doing it. Yeah, you can tell the difference between people who have any experience in politics and the activists on Twitter. Who are saying, you know, Joe Biden just can't possibly manage to perform on Tuesday night. Um, everybody who's even remotely peripherally engaged in politics knows you don't lower debate expectations like that ahead of the debate. You raise them. You make him perform. If Joe Biden shows up and doesn't have a, you know, a senior moment on stage now, it will be a win for him because the expectations are such so low that he can. It's a low bar that he can clear. Um, and yeah, I, I, sh- I don't think that this is all debate prep. I do think this campaign is extremely lethargic. And in the event that he loses, everybody who's blowing these details off will go back and revisit them and say, well, you know, we, we saw the problems coming a mile away, man. We, this is obvious. And only the professionals were aware of these ominous portents. But at the same time, the president is in the news a lot and it's not doing him any favors. Why would you want to be in the news? If you're doing the Biden campaign, you exist as a as a hypothetical, an apparition that just kind of is in the ether and doesn't have any any solid form to it. That's that's a benefit to you. Well, and nothing seems to stick. Right. I mean, I I, correct me if I'm wrong, but if it was if if a congressional investigation found out that Mike Pence's daughter had received millions of dollars in a wire transfer from the widow of the mayor of Moscow while, you know, right, like right now, would, would that not be a story? Like the, the, there's a lot of stuff that's been coming out about Biden's uh, record, which is really what, you know, he's running on his record as much as Trump is and none of it seems to stick. So, I mean, you're probably right, John, like there's just something about he's the guy behind the curtain. I mean, he's playing wizard of Oz here and that might work. 
Well, that one doesn't stick because the people who did the investigation couldn't make it stick. I mean, I've seen yeah. these headlines from places like our friends over at the Federalist, which are like, look at this transfer of money. Isn't that suspicious? Well, the Johnson investigation found that they couldn't link any political activity right. or any change in American public policy to these money transfers. If you could have made that charge, it would be in the headline. Instead, you're just dealing in innuendo. Well, it and looks- that's why it's not going to stick. Well, in, in the sense that, I mean, the, what sticks for me is, is I agreed. It doesn't, it, there's no evidence that this changed how we, how we behave towards Russia or Ukraine. But the idea that, that, you know, he's incorruptible while Trump is totally corrupt, in that sense, as a political charge, I think it should have some, you know, his family clearly has benefited from his role as a vice president and a senator. Um, he's trying to run as the kind of fine, upstanding, return to normalcy, ethical person. Um, I think it casts some questionable. Uh, I mean, look, we've, we've had to listen to lots of charges about the Trump kids for the past several years, many of them justifiable. Um, I, okay, I, what I, did I say in 2019? What did I say? I said, the Trump people are insane, because they've gone at Hunter too early. This was stupid doing it in the summer of 2019. This is the material that you want to save in case Biden is the nominee to try to bring him down in October. So they did everything they did that caused impeachment. Trump wasn't impeached. And now it's turning into October and they have a little bit of news that they got out of this thing. And if Hunter had been let to his own devices for another year and they and the Republican Party had controlled and contained itself and Trump had any understanding of how to time political events to his advantage, this could have been the only story around in the middle of September. But he blew it. He blew it. They spent, they had hearings on this for two months. That's all I'm going to say. That makes sense. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's what Noah's talking about. I mean, you know, what there is is a lot of smoke and it, it looks very unseemly and clearly he's a sleaze and a loser and he's like grabbing money wherever he can get it because because these potentates in other countries don't know that the son of the vice president has no power and has the, doesn't really isn't really going to be able to do anything with that power. So it's a great scam to go around, you know, shoveling money in from you know from morons in other countries who who don't understand how power actually works in the United States. And and uh, and so you really could have gone with the oh you really think Trump I mean this is literally the cor- corrupt Hillary stuff you think Trump and his family are emolumenting well what about Biden and his family but but we had it was the dominant political story of sick of the last six months of 2019 I mean it, the president will bring it up but this dovetails back to the what we started with with the president's refusal to to countenance a peaceful transition of power is he just, he cannot allow this election to become a referendum on his opponent. It must be all about him. He sees everything within the context of him. And if it's a referendum on him, I think he loses. Well, I think everybody understands that it's the, you know, the referendum on him is it's, it's, if he loses and if it's a choice election, he could, he could win it. However, if the choice is now going to be between somebody who, against whom there is a somewhat credible charge that he is threatening not to leave office if he loses the election, and somebody who says, I'm not crazy, 
uh, and there are people in the middle who are genuinely undecided, he's just made that choice a lot easier for them than it was at three o'clock yesterday. I go back I go back to that sign that started popping up right after the inauguration of Donald Trump, any functioning adult 2020. Like there are a fair number of people and who's the functioning adult in this scenario? I think that answer is pretty clear. And that's of course the savage irony here because we have no idea whether Biden right. is in right. fact a functioning right. adult. So it's two dysfunct so we now have two dysfunctional adults 2020, it appears. And we're going to have to make our choices uh, that way. Anyway, with that, we will uh, we will call a halt to the proceedings today and get be back with you tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.